Welcome to Cloud Radio, made for full-stack cloud operators. Cloud Radio covers all aspects of the business of software. All right, happy to have Andy Wilson from Logical, uh, who just had a very big exit and was kind enough to join us. I uh, reached out to him the day it was announced publicly, and we were able to get him on the calendar. Uh, and if you don't know about Logical, e-discovery legal tech platform that was recently acquired by um, a larger strategic. And Andy was the CEO and founder of the business. And Andy, maybe you can tell the audience a bit more about yourself. Yeah, right on. Thanks, Matt. Happy to be here. Yeah, a bit more about myself. So um, started Logical pretty much right out of college, 2004. It was not a software company from the very beginning, but we built software. It was an, as a tech-enabled services company. Then we transitioned into SaaS and launched Logical the Platform in 2013. Jason Limpkin came on as an investor in 2015, and uh, and then here we are. I'm in Bend, Oregon. Nice, nice. And how does it feel, first of all, like kind of like reaching the end <laughs> of the rainbow, having an exit? It's been, what, like two weeks at this point? How do you feel? Yeah, I mean, good uh, overall. I think you, you kind of, I mean, I've been going at this I was going at it for 19 years, you know, with a co-founder. I don't think I could have done it without a co-founder, kind of go insane. And I think you go through all the standard stages, you know, no regrets, feeling good. So would you do it again? Yeah, totally, 100%. And kind of what drove the decision to sell? Was this like you guys, part of your strategic plan, you ran a process, opportunistic? No, I'd say it's probably more just opportunistic, you know, like... these things don't happen that often. You know, your head's down, grinding away, and you get, you know, CEOs get bombarded constantly with like, hey, we'd like to invest or we'd like to buy your company. And, you know, for a long time, I would respond with pretty simple, hey, thanks, really appreciate it, very flattering. We're not for sale, but uh, what are you offering, right? Like, and that would usually result in a lot of word salad but no real numbers. <laughs> and, so, and so this time, uh, when I said that, there was a real number uh, associated with it. And it was interesting. And we're like, eh, you know, we'll, we'll keep going. And then we got to know each other over the course of a year. And, you know, the price kept getting bigger and bigger. And there you go. Nice. Did you use a banker? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. And I would highly recommend it. I mean, it's because you we were operating under the assumption like this isn't going to happen right it's like hey we're, business is going great we're profitable we're growing and uh, a lot of tailwinds uh with the business and so we were we were operating under the assumption that something bad would happen and we don't want to be distracted by this thing and so a banker can basically take off the vast majority of the bullshit you know that you have to deal with when you're going through an m a process which is <laughs> a lot of minutiae you know, they charge a hefty fee, but I think it's worth it. Sounds good. And which banker did you use? Give them a shout out. Raymond James. Raymond James. Okay. Well, if you have yeah. a legal tech company, consider Raymond James. Um, yeah. Totally. And then would were, recommend. were there any like industry dynamics? And I'll just frame the question, given that like legal tech is one area where AI has been a real reality. Did AI yeah. in any way play into like the decision to sell? Uh, you mean in terms of opportunity or risk? Perhaps both. Like perhaps, you know, would AI be more capital intensive and you would kind of have to 
double down and raise a massive round to go fully capitalize on it or anything no, of that nature. Yeah. So on the risk side, I mean, there's always risk with any you know disruptive new technology. And initially, I think that was the reaction. But after we got to understand how the technology works, what the pricing models would look like, we're like, oh, we're actually in a really great position to take advantage of it. Um, it is more expensive, obviously, but you don't, you know, for what we do, it wasn't necessarily, and the position that we're at, you know, the scale that we're at, and, you know, profitable, it wasn't uh, a break the bank, hey, we need to go raise more money situation. So no, uh, no real uh, foreseeable risk, more opportunity than anything. So the, the strategic that acquired us was already pretty deep in the enterprise on legal and large law firm with AI models, uh, highly tuned, very use, space, uh, use case specific, mm -hmm. like highly use case specific. And we were using newer technology, but we combined these two together. We're like, there's, there's a pretty big opportunity here. So it played a role, but it wasn't like the thing. Got it. Got it. And then just, you know, for the audience here, which is mainly like investors, some, you know, generalist founders who don't really have an appreciation of what e-discovery is. Maybe we could just walk through it from like a business model, deal size, sales cycle. What exactly e-discovery is? Who do you sell to? just to set the stage. Yeah. So the way that I describe e-discovery to people that don't know it is uh, I use three kind of pillars of disputes, investigations, and records requests. Mm -hmm. and, so, and then underneath that are lots of different types of use cases. So for, for instance, the most common use case that people are familiar with, with e-discovery is litigation. So when two companies are suing each other, they need to prove facts, right? Like, hey, who said what and when, right? To then understand the why behind it. And all that information is digital now, right? Slack messages, tech messages, email, mostly email. And it's growing exponentially, uh, which we all know, you know, it's it's a, a big mess. And so you have this kind of noise to signal issue where you've got an enormous amount of noise and a very small amount of signal. And that's why we built the product. That's why it's called Logic Call. It's a calling service. Yep. And so that's a very common use case. And that's under kind of the dispute category. And then the investigations category is, let's say, for instance, some employee is harassing another employee on Slack. How do you prove that, right? Well, usually that person goes to HR, complains, or somebody else, and then it gets escalated. You can use our tool, logical to go through and find that evidence like that, like in a matter of seconds to see who, who did what and when. And then on records request side, and I'm generalizing here, yep. but like records requests, if you're familiar with public records request or FOIA, mm -hmm. you know, it's a citizen almost every time asking for information about their, uh, their, their government or their public organization that's funded by the government, like a school system, as an example, saying, hey, like, I want to know, you know, what are you teaching our kids in the school? Like, tell me about your mask mandates. And so that's a public records request. And then they have to go through all the digital content there. Same thing, email, Slack, you know, Google Chats, et cetera. And then they have to share that information out. And so it's kind of this garbage in, garbage out problem. You're, you're looking in the rearview mirror to try and understand you know, what happened. And then you're isolating the set of information that's important. And then sometimes massaging that, like redacting it, you know, sensitive information like a school social security number or location or things like that. And then you share it with the requesting parties. That's, that's basically a discovery. Nice, nice. And first of all, like from a customer point of view, when you would go sell in there, were you dealing with practicing attorneys, IT staff, uh, an another type of decision maker? 
So, so logical was almost entirely inbound. We had no outbound sales motion, all by design, you know, from kind of day one. And so we had customers all walks of life from pro se litigants. These are people that represent themselves mm -hmm. in court to the world's largest, you know, fortune 10 companies and governments around the world and every, kind of everybody in between. Right. And so because we have this wide array of customer types, you've got all different walks of life, but primarily we sold into legal and IT. And on the law firm side, it's always a lawyer for the most part or a paralegal, you know, signing up uh, because they, they need to do, they need to use it on behalf of their clients. When it's a non-law firm, say it's a, um, a school district or a, uh, a government or some in-house legal team, you know, at a tech company, it's usually somebody in IT or in, in legal. And so they would sign up, you know, uh, get a demo or go into a free trial. And then you know, it's kind of a land and expand uh, motion uh, from there with a the sales assist piece to it as well. Interesting. And, you know, you're in a vertical market that e-discovery has been around for some time in various yes. forms. Like, how were you able to drive an inbound motion? So our hypothesis, when we, when we came up with the idea... We're, we're trying to think through kind of that Jeff Bezos model, like what's not going to change, you know, in a decade or two decades from now. And we came across two things that kind of shaped this, the whole strategy of the product and the business. And one was the duh, data, you know, it's like everything's data is going to keep growing up and to the right and to the left and, and up and, you know, just continue to expand like, like a tree in complexity. And that's not going to stop. Right. And so that's number one. And number two was, the deadlines that legal teams are under are not going to move. So you have this kind of a movable object and this tsunami of digital information, like that's going to create a clusterfuck, uh, pardon my French, uh, for you know a vast majority of people that need to dig through all this data for various uh, disputes, investigations, and records requests. And, and that's why we called it logical. Because like, okay, well, what we really need to do is help them identify all the noise and if they if we can do that using automation and machine learning, i.e. AI, to bucket it up and say, hey, here's all this information we think is irrelevant, move it to the side, i.e. call it, then the rest that's left over is probably what you need, the evidence in the situation. So we so that's, that was the unique insight. And so from from there, we realized, okay, this is a problem that everybody's gonna have. It's not going to be just the largest companies in the world. It's going to be small companies because small companies are going to generate lots of data as well. And then they're under the same deadlines. And so let's build a product that is entirely self-service, super easy, like drag and drop upload. Like there was only three tabs in the product, upload, search, download. Like that was it. And that's from 2013 till today. And so uh, we built it that way. And then we just started investing in SEO and SEM very early on. Did some offline things as well, just to gauge, you know, trade show reaction. That's kind of that kind of thing. And then the last thing I'll mention is what we didn't necessarily know, but we thought would be true, was that if we built it the right way, like it's all architecture, right? If you really build the right architecture, we thought we could have a, a strong network effect with with some potential virality, and that totally turned out to be true. So like our customers ended up inviting more and more people into the product and getting exposure. And then they would become customers and then they would share documents with other people and they would become customers and so just started compounding. And did you like have any financial incentives in that virality, the referral base, or was it truly organic referral? It, it was truly organic. Now we tried 
incentives. We tried, we tried everything, man. And the thing that we learned for the, from the legal industry is they can't really take incentives that well. They have this, you know, Conflict. ethical guidelines. Yeah. <laughs> so they have to, it's not like sales and marketing, you know, where you can be like, hey, I'll send you a flat screen TV if you, you know, refer me to your friend. Legal is pretty guarded with that. And we tried to juice it because it was already happening organically. Because if, if you think about like discovery is just this garbage in, garbage out. It's like, you, you, Matt, you, you say, I need all this information from Andy. Well, then I have to go through it first because I don't want to give you too much, right? I don't want to give you my sensitive stuff. And so I, I go through and call it and then I package it up and I send it to you. Well, the way most people were sending data pre-logical was through zip files or thumb drives even. And so we built a DocuSign-like model or echo sign like model <laughs> props there to share the documents directly from logical to them. And then one click, they can just open them and use the product for free. And so it's a very similar type of dynamics that just happens organically. That makes perfect sense. And did you find like a, having an inbound motion was like more predictable, steadier results because it was like a, a different type of funnel than your like sales bound peers? <laughs> For us, yes. Uh, I mean, we got pretty good at it. Like the the marketing engine that we built was was very good. And then we had a, it was all land and expand. So, you know, roughly speaking, fifty percent of our new ARR within a year would come from upsells. You know, almost like clockwork every year, just boom, 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 boom. Now, not, I'm not saying you don't need salespeople. We tried that. It was successful, but nowhere near as successful as like actually having salespeople you know, work these deals and negotiate bigger contracts. And then you get into like six figures and seven figure contracts. You can't really do that um, yet. I think with just like products, <laughs> UI check out here for $1 million a year, maybe Atlassing can get away with that, but not in our market. And we tried outbound too. Outbound in our market was challenging. Uh, there's a lot of skepticism from lawyers on salespeople, they don't want to take the calls. It's, it's really tough. Selling into IT a little bit easier with outbound, but inbound worked really well. And just like to frame it for people, like like how many e-discovery players are out there? Well, there's kind of two buckets. So the market that we disrupted and there really was no real self-service e-discovery competition was, was uh, uh, professional services. So like that, and that's still today, like the vast majority of the multi-billions of dollars that are spent on e-discovery every year, they go to people that project manage these e-discovery use cases, right? There's, there's technology behind it, but it's not self-service, right? This is really common to the point where like the largest and most sophisticated companies in the world, that's how they do e-discovery. They don't do it themselves. Yep. Outsource it to somebody else. And sometimes that's a law firm. So, you know, so, so that's the vast majority of the market. And then the e-discovery software market is it's built for the um, expert use case. So it's kind of like high end, you know, bells and whistles, six figure software. It's not built for, you know, self-service, you know, end users. It's built for like ad super admin. And so we were kind of the only game in town when it came to just, hey, actually, like you've never used e-discovery before? You're 75 years old. <laughs> Here you go. Put a credit card in. You're off to the races. Nice, nice. All right. It was, it's helpful framing because so many of these vertical markets can just be incredibly crowded, or at least when you go look at them at first and they like yeah. not fully get to see, okay, well, they're really targeting corporate law firms, but 
totally inappropriate yeah. for a local municipality filing, you know, request for information act or FOIA. FOIA. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, I'd say the vast majority of people in a legal role aren't, you know, obsessed with technology like you and I are. Like they don't it doesn't come naturally to them. And so I wouldn't call them like low tech in a condescending way, but it's just if you throw like these super admin type of technologies at them, they freak out and they, they're like, nope, I'd rather just call somebody and have them take care of it, even though it's riskier and more expensive. Now, you know, an interesting part about legal tech and like part of the reason I wanted to schedule this was I viewed it as one of the areas that's actually played in AI, the kind of AI yeah, as it's exactly. being discussed today. There's actually relatively few areas where it's really been implemented or you could call it machine learning, whatever you want to call it. But for how AI is being discussed today, you've been in that market, you've dealt with customers using AI from a service you provide. Mm-hmm. Like any learnings there in terms of managing user expectations first? I'd say until until ChatGPT came around, we never even said AI. Yep. Because it would create more questions, it freaked people out, you know, we're in that low tech type of area for the most part. And so it was just like, yeah, it's just like magic, you know, just happened. I'm like, cool. These days, I think people are becoming more comfortable with it. You know, that said, the legal market is so behind the times. Like it is filled with PDF and paper processes. Like that is how the bulk of the work gets done. Mix in some spreadsheets, you know, and email attachments, right? So AI can be, depending on the type of AI you're using, it can be kind of overkill when all they really need is just some process automation, you know? Then you can sprinkle on some like AI later, but I, I'd say you, you you often don't want to start there in legal, you know, just like try and like reduce the tedious bullshit that they're dealing with. And then kind of a related question because so much of like AI and user expectations gets down to like accuracy, right? And e-discovery itself, right? Where it's, okay, we're going to go find all examples of that rogue employee hassling, or we're going to go through 1 million documents. Like, well, what is the accuracy level you're promising? That is a very important question because unlike other, you know, professions, like sales and marketing as an example versus you know, somebody in sales versus somebody in legal, like accuracy, like precision is super important. If you're actually using AI to make decisions that a human would normally be involved in. So as an example, one of the biggest pieces of, of e-discovery workflow is determining relevance. Like you're looking at an email or a contract is like, is this relevant to this matter? You know, this, this case and a human has to go through that. And it's very expensive. Like the the e-discovery workflow mints tens of billions of dollars a year for law firms all around the world, uh, because all they're doing is going through and reading one by one. And because that's safe in their mind, right? It's safe to spend $500 an hour to have somebody look at, you know, 50 documents an hour. So that's super expensive, you know, um, supervised learning, so to speak, <laughs> but that's how they do it. That's, that's what it is. And so the, the way we approach this was, okay, you can't go all full tilt to say, let the machine do it. Cause that's going to have a higher accuracy rate. You have to, um, you know, do a classic, you know, boil the frog or, you know, crawl, crawl, walk, run, fly type of, um, scenario 
And so what we built was this model using their own historical tagging information. So like they would tag a document as you know, relevant or non-relevant or confidential. And then we built a suggested model on top of that to say like, hey, we think that these things should be tagged this way. And here's a percentage of, of confidence based on that. And then as we started to see people accept that, like, okay, would you like to just like turn this on and it can just automatically do it for you? So you get people to walk into that. And so that's, that's on like the very like document specific level. And that's where the majority of, of cost savings and time savings can happen when you're into that realm. Everything outside of that, like what Logical does in its core is it identifies all the obviously irrelevant things. So like all the emails from Yahoo Sports or like your bank account, like it'll just set those inside and say, don't even look at them. And that's not no AI in that. That's just like simple automation. Yeah. And, and people can trust that, right? When I hear that, I'm like, okay, you know, I don't need a contract attorney ensuring that Yahoo Sports is relevant or not relevant. And, that's exactly and you boil it down to a pool of the what 4%, 5% that's potentially relevant. Yeah. And they can always go back into the other pool and create reports and submit it to the court and say, here, here are all the documents that we decided not to review. And here's the reasons why. And it's all auto-filled. So you have this ironclad justification for the, the obvious noise. And then you also have I wouldn't say it's necessarily ironclad, but you have a very strong justification for the AI decision making for you know per per document. Interesting. And I know there's a, a lot of founders and boards and everyone out there thinking of or in the process of incorporating AI. And like one of my mm-hmm. focus areas for that area is uh, you know managing expectations because that difference between magical and mediocre is very, very important, right? When you have the great experience, it's obviously magical. But when you have something that gives you a complete nonsense answer, it's horrible and can completely kill your interest and trust level in the product. So with that oh, yeah. set up, like to someone outside of legal tech who's expanding into AI, like what advice would you give them? uh beyond what you just said like don't don't ship shit (laughs) Uh, (laughs) yeah i mean um i i don't know it's kind of generic and i only you know can go off of like our our situation but we didn't we wanted we wanted to like hold people's hands right like getting them to feel like wow you know but like little things little things first and then you know sprinkle on that and, and not go you know too crazy too fast I mean, before I left, you know, for the acquisition, we were working on some stuff that was like scary, mind blowing. <laughs> like, like the market's not even ready for this kind of stuff yet. So, how are we going to go through that? And I, I never finished that, but that's a, uh, that that's a big one. But so anyway, I would just think of it as like, what's a small use case that you know will solve a problem for somebody and would deliver that magical wow experience with high confidence that doesn't have that like. You know, the chatbot challenge has a lot of that, right? The challenges with like shit responses, right? But there's other ways that you can incorporate these AI elements into just useful buttons that just magically appear. Uh, we used to do this thing. I mean, you could do it today, like if you're not sure. But we, we used to put placebo buttons in the product. We're like, because we didn't know like if this feature would be valuable or not. So we just made the, the button, didn't do shit, you know, but it was there. And then we just tracked to see like, what would happen? And, you know, if somebody clicked it, we'd say, hey, this isn't ready yet, but would you like to use it? Why? 
that was really helpful. So if you're unsure, you can kind of ship some simple pixels and you know see and see what happens. And then kind of a follow-on there is like you are in a very, you know, accuracy and precision centric category, right? Yeah. How involved were you in like quality assurance, kind of like setting the tone at the top um, with respect to the product's accuracy? Oh, very. Multiple days a week. Like, you know, in product design reviews, testing it myself, um, talking with customers. Like I, I spent probably half of my week is either talking to or listening to customers because you know, we're all remote companies, so all these different time zones. So we have Gong, I was just commenting on Twitter to one of Jason's posts this morning, actually, like before I left, I listened to uh, over a thousand Gong calls in a 12 month time span. And that's just like my podcast of choice. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like listening to, listening to, to customers. So very, very involved. Awesome. So that's a good inspiration, I think, for some people that you can't just abandon the product and assume all of this stuff is going to work, right? No, absolutely not. Especially uh, with something that's new, you know, and potentially transformative to the company, like you've got to reset and just treat it almost like day zero. Like, okay, like we got to talk to talk to as many customers as possible and iterate as fast as possible. Because uh, if you get it right, like you could leapfrog competition pretty quickly. Nice, nice. And this is a good transition point about you being hands-on. It, it came through in a thread you did on Twitter I, when you guys had celebrated your 19th anniversary. You had mm-hmm. 19 takeaways or 19 tips, and I'm going to read a few of them, and then we'll we'll put that thread in the show notes. It's really, really good. There's a lot <laughs> in this genre of founder advice, and it's legitimately good. So we'll go from here. Point one, the team you build is the company you build. Want to build a great company, find great people, and never settle. Anything there you want to elaborate on? And just to be clear, I stole that from, I think, Vinod Kosla or Keith Raboy. I can't remember exactly who said that originally. That A version of that is in, almost permeates every like classic business book out there. You know, like, why do these companies do great things? It's because they didn't fuck around when they hired people. You know, they, they kept the bar really, really high. And man, I tell you, like, and I made mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes, especially if you don't have that at the top of your mind every single time. Like you let, you like, I really need to get this person in the door, and but they're just not perfect. Or they're, you know, they're lowering the bar and you do it anyway and you regret it every single time. And uh, yeah, like, you know, that's why Amazon has that bar raiser. Did you ever yep. hear about that? Yep. Yeah, I think they implemented that because it, it does become harder and harder, especially for founders. We interviewed everybody, you know, my co-founder and I, we, we interviewed everyone. And so you, t- you keep a tight grip at the very last stages of the hiring process. And sometimes you're gonna rub people the wrong way by saying, nope, you know? So you're kind of the, you're the bar raiser or the bar holder, you know, just to, to certain, a certain extent. But I really like that Amazon approach to, you know, keeping people like the best of the best in the company. It's like, your job is to maintain this quality. Like, don't fuck it up. Got it. And then number four, I like this one, but it's also intriguing, right? In the way you you had it. Number four, get written agreements for the work you need done, not assumed mm-hmm. expectations. Assume equals ass and you and me. And so the, <laughs> the written agreements part, could you dive deeper into that? Yeah. So think about it like 
a contractor. Like you, you need to hire somebody to build closets in your house, right? Which I just, I just did. Yep. And I, I met with them. They're really nice, and we talked about it. And I said, all right, send me a contract of what you want, and I'll make sure it's all right. Right. So, like, line by line, like this is what we're going to do, and this is when it's going to be done. This is how much it's going to cost. That is a great way of doing business. But when it when it comes to like, oh, if that contractor is now a full time employee, a lot of that shit just goes out the window. You're just like, you assume they know how to put the closets in at the way that you want and uh, at the price and the timeline, et cetera. And whenever you do that and you, you, you assume expectations will be met, it's rare that they will. And so what we did a long time ago, when somebody first started as part of their 90 days, we're like, okay, here are what you need to get done in the first 90 days. Do you agree to this? Like, this is me and you talking. Like, do you agree to this? Okay, I'm going to, this is this. And then when you're done with these, it's on you. You tell us when, when, when they're completed. And then you just carry that forward and pretty much everything else that you engage on, not in like a micromanagey way, but like any kind of project work, you're getting agreement with the, the one driver that is um, operating that project is critical. Don't ever assume. And, you know, at Logical, was that you know, kind of a rolling basis? Everyone was kind of working from a 90-day plan they committed to, or it was a little more yeah. flexible than that? A little bit more flexible than that. I mean, we had a, um, so our 90-day plan also had a rolling 30-day opt-out that could go either way. So like the manager could say, nope, this is not working out. You know, here's $5,000 and, you know, thank you for your service, right? And the employee could do the same thing, like, you know, tap out and say, you know what, this isn't for me. I wasn't expecting it to be this hard or I don't like this market or whatever. And they could say, please give me 5000 bucks and we'll leave. And you don't want that to be like the norm, right? Because that that's a that means your hiring process is flawed if you're doing that all the time. But you still need to have it there as a quality check because you can go through and have the best interview process on the planet and think you have a great hire only to find out that the person is not that person, right? And you want to make it easy for them to leave within that first 90 days because the first 90 days are the next 900. Yep. Almost every time I've seen that. It's like, if you don't like what you see, and it's really 30 days, Matt. Like, I, 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 I pulled it down. I was talking to my co-founder, Shin, about this a couple months ago. I was like, you know, I don't think after the first 30 days, anybody has remarkably changed, you know, based on the feedback that they've been given. Just that's who they are in that first 30 days. It's true. It's true. And then here, we'll move on to number five from that. I think there's some good tactics in four, but number five, hire leaders that run at high tempos with high energy and high capability. The team will mirror them and the force will multiply. Yes. Huge. I mean, it's back to number one, the team you build, the company builds. So I've seen this time and time again. Like if you, if you bring on a, a manager or an exec that doesn't have that internal drive, you know, to hold people accountable and, you know, ha- be impatient, then the, the rest of the team will suffer. They'll all like, they won't have that. But if you do, if you do the opposite and you find somebody that's just like, go, 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 high energy, drinks a shit ton of coffee. Right. But and it's not like an asshole. Uh, I, we weren't, you know, looking for that type of person at, at our company, but just really energetic, fun to be around and, and could hold people accountable. Cause that's, the, what I've noticed with people that are like that, oftentimes their weakness is in, um, you know, really holding people accountable and kind of being the bad cop because they like 
they like to be the cheerleader and the good cop, you know, too much. Don't get me wrong. You don't want to hire cheerleaders, but you definitely need people that are going to be high energy, impatient, and will hold people accountable. And like, I will put that above skills every day. Got it. Every single day. Because that will drive the rest of the team and they will all eventually mirror them. Got it. That's good stuff. I thought eight was interesting. Build something people want and value. Price accordingly. I feel like there's some mm-hmm. message there in the price accordingly. <laughs> I just had this conversation with this entrepreneur in um, uh, in Europe uh, today. And he wants to, he's in a services business and he wants to go into SaaS and he read my faster post and he's like, tell me more. And he said, you know, I think I'm going to price it at X per month. And I was like, where the hell did that come from? And he's like, well, you know, based on like my time and da, 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 da. And I was like, okay, let me just humor me. But let's say you're charging X per month and you come to find out that this service is delivering a hundred X impact. Like maybe you're saving Maybe you're charging them a thousand dollars a month and you're saving them a million dollars a year. Well, you're an idiot. You know, like if, you, if you're doing that, like why would you do that? That's not priced accordingly. Um, and so I recommended the book uh, Monetizing Innovation. That's uh, a classic. You know how to actually price software, especially in vertical SaaS, like super important and legal in particular. Like there's a lot of fat and because it's a very inefficient market, right? So like there's a lot of fat in legal. And, and the right product can uh, trim away a lot of that fat and save enormous amounts of time and money. Like it was not uncommon for Logical to, within a year, you know, have a, a 10, 20x return on investment. Like that was not uncommon. But at early days, we didn't price accordingly for that. And we kind of felt like chumps, you know, and some of those customers treated us like chumps. But then we figured out, well, shit, we got to price accordingly for this so that we're respected. And what what I mentioned to this entrepreneur was, and this is kind of my rule of thumb, I think in general, you can charge 10 to 20% of the value that you create, you know, something, something like that. So if you've got a million dollar contract, you're probably saving that customer five, $10 million a year. This is great stuff on ROI, which kind of my observation and some of the work we do at cloud ratings is that ROI sophistication kind of in the earlier stages of the market and even at larger stages is lacking. And so you can just see these huge disconnects and then very sophisticated sellers are able to you know, jam the market, but only at a two times ROI, but they know how to sell it and position it. Yeah, totally. The art of actually understanding how much things cost for the customer and you know, what they're going to get like that's there's so much, so much profit opportunity there. And then uh, number nine, this one was good. And it, it, came through in a lot of the stuff I was researching about kind of your customer centricity and even the way you guys would talk about things on Glassdoor and the like was number nine. No customers, no employees, no revenue, no business. Focus on customers and have all employees, especially engineers, frequently interact with customers. This will create empathy and empathy drives urgency. 100%. Like, it's such a no-brainer. It's like, do you want more customers? Go spend time with your customers. Like, customers, more spending more time with customers creates more customers. Like, that is age-old. That's why I spend a lot of time, because I want more customers, you know, and dominate the market. And, like, so I spend a shit ton of time with customers. And when I do that, the rest of my team does that. And then people on their team do that. And then you can incorporate other things to really drive that message home. So, like, because one of our core values 
like every every customer every company's core value should be put the customer first not put the employee first that's ridiculous obviously you got to have employees before customers usually but it's the customers that matter so you got to make sure that you have everybody aligned to that and that you're there to service that customer especially in SaaS because SaaS at the end of the day is a services business like you are in the services business you have a software but you're servicing it to a customer and so you need to support that customer with great service so many software uh, entrepreneurs get this wrong. They think it's all about the software. And you got obviously have to have great software, but to really scale, I think the service side of that is important. That's just, just not, not just the human, you know, obvious contact us support type of service, but also just the service itself, like maintaining um, you know, uptime, et cetera. Putting customers in your all hands meetings. That's what we would do on Monday mornings. Like we'd have a customer join and tell us a story. You know, about how they're using it and what they would like to see improved. And then we'd always end on a high note, like what, what do you like best about it? You know, that kind of stuff. And then you share that with the whole company. It's inspiring. It's fascinating to even have your customers in your all hands on a regular basis. Uh, yeah. Like every month? Oh, multiple times. Wow. Early on, we had an all hands religiously, same day, same time, every week. And then as we started to get a little bit bigger and busier, we did them roughly like three times a week. Or sorry, sorry, three times a month. <laughs> three times a week would be ridiculous. Yeah. And these were, these were short. Like we would keep them to 30 minutes or less. Okay. Sometimes they would be longer if we had a lot more to share. But uh, we'd, have, we'd, we'd phone the customer in so they didn't feel awkward joining a Zoom with a bunch of people staring at them. So we would just call them in. And we'd give them the questions ahead of time so they, you know, weren't caught by surprise. And yeah, that was, that was awesome. I mean, people, people would uh, slack afterwards. Like, that was amazing. I can't believe we we're helping them do X, Y, and Z. And then that's, you know, that's what helps um, the business grow. Look, that's, that's really impressive to have it at that level. Like there's, you can totally understand the CEO spending time with the customers, but like driving it to the point that the customer's are that available on that cadence is I, I haven't heard many instances of anything like that. So. Oh, we would take it to the extreme because when uh, we only had five values and the way that we did values was very action oriented. It's like, it's, it's, these are the only things you really need to know about logical. If you can only know these, this is it, these five things, like this is how we operate the business. And so put the customer first was number one, you know, for obvi obvious reasons here. But we would put it into everything. So uh, in any possible way, like if there was some sort of customer um, event, the customer would talk, would talk first, you know, before anybody else in a very literal sense. So highly recommend adopting that one. Got it. That, that's impressive stuff. Let's do uh, number 16. Small teams with high agency and chips on their shoulders will win. Keep your team small and give them direction and freedom to succeed. So the chips on the shoulder, like, how do you think about that? How did you screen for it? That is a big one for me because I have a chip on my shoulder. And so I look for people. Yeah, it's that Josh Wolf quote, like chips on shoulders, puts chips in pockets, right? I think that is, is very true. You know, if, if somebody's been slighted. So it's pretty easy to interview for this. Like, you know, just asking questions like, you know, um, have you ever been slighted in the past? Like, how do you feel about that? You know, da, 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 da. and you can kind of sense when people are like really agitated, they've got not an ax to grind and some sort of revenge, you know, psycho uh, scenario, but like they, they want to prove something to somebody. 
uh, it shows up in a lot of uh, people that have an athletic background. Um, you know, why did you get into athletics? Why did you become, you know, an all-star, you know, X? And you, you come to find out like they were picked on as a kid, you know, something like that. But yeah, so that combined with like small teams. And when I say small teams, whenever we're developing a feature, and this could be any kind of feature, I mean, I'm talking like two, three people max. Like that's it. And it could be the biggest feature out there. You know, once you start getting over that, it's really um, diminishing returns, you know, so like the whole like agile method of like taking everything out into putting into fucking Jira tickets everywhere drives me insane. Like, and like, are you kidding me? Like you just get, cause I've seen these, these scenarios where like one engineer, like one really brilliant engineer takes this big ass project all by themselves. Doesn't, doesn't create one Jira ticket. Like, it's just like, this is the thing that I'm going to be working on. And then they crush it, you know, in like a week or two. So anyway, small teams win. Interesting. And then I know Jason Lepkin at Saster 2013 said, had a lot of praise for you about your ability to grind through it and stick through it. So I think 18 is, is pretty re relevant. Extinction level events happen. We had a few ourselves. The team will, you build will define whether your business lives or dies during these times. So when in doubt, hire for grit. Tough times yep. don't last, but tough people do. And then your number 19 was also never give up. So can you talk about like resiliency and kind of in the logical story, things you overcome, near death moments? <laughs> oh boy. Well, I was just reminiscing about that at our closing dinner uh, last week. <laughs> There's a lot. I mean, the most recent one being SVB, you know, freezing all of our money over a weekend was quite terrifying, but that not, that's nothing compared to some of the other things that we faced. Like when we were building logical and also running the services business at the same time there was a time where we were running out of cash and shin and i my co-founder shin and i we weren't taking a salary for almost a full year so we're just like paying these engineers and we also got this other company that we're building you know and we're trying to like see all these things back and forth and we're just trying to get the cash to extend you know as far as far as we possibly could i think this was 2011 2012, something like that. And we only had like three months of cash left. And we got this project that landed on our desk. It ended up being the Bank of America countrywide mortgage. Mm. You remember that? Yeah, thing? yeah. And they needed to process all this data for the DOJ and do it within a week. And it happened to be like all the mortgage loans. It was massive, you know, tens of millions of documents, right? And we needed to process it in a certain way for them. Nobody else could do it. And they said, how much is this going to cost? And I needed a quarter of a million dollars to continue to fund operations because I knew we were going to get past this. But that was it. Like, we were kind of like dead after that. And they said, okay. <laughs> so I was kind of pissed because I named a random price that I needed, but I didn't price to value because yeah. it turns out like that this was like insanely value. I could have probably 10x that and they would have said, okay. Maybe they would have been like, Ooh, okay. But they would have paid it because it's Bank of America. Anyway, so we took on this project. And at the last minute, they come back and say, hey, we, we need to make like five copies of all these hard drives. And we need you to uh, overnight them to one of them to San Francisco, DA's office, et cetera. Um, we're like, are you fucking kidding me? You didn't tell us that. And all the stores are closed and we don't have any hard, uh, we don't have enough hard drives to do redundancies. And we had this old machine that was used to make copies of hard drives. So you, it looked like something out of Mother Russia. It was just like a slab of metal, right? And you'd plug in a raw hard drive into it and then other drives, 
and there was a big uh, light that goes red or green. And, and there was two buttons, the one that was a turtle and one that was a rabbit. And so the company that made this device was out of business too. We didn't have the manual anymore. We hadn't used this thing in years. And we're like, oh shit, we have, this has to be perfect. But we couldn't remember which one was copy and which one was delete. And this is at like, I don't know, 11 o'clock at night. And one of the engineers that was working on the project was like, well, we just got to flip a coin. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> so we're like, boop, flip the coin. And uh, we said, okay, it's, uh, I think it was the rabbit. And yes, it was. And that copied. And we had the exact amount of hard drives, did a red eye overnight, got paid, I think, three weeks later, saved the company. So like that was... That's one, you know, there's like employee issues that happen every now and then, you know, that, that can really submarine you, but yeah, losing, uh, we lost our largest customer, our, like by far, <laughs> and uh, that almost killed us. I could go on. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of that. Yeah, there's some good war stories in there. And that kind of relates to, you know, through all of this, like you had your co-founder. And yeah. how did you maintain like a good, healthy relationship with a co-founder for basically two decades? Yeah, well, we went to college together too. So uh, we complement each other really well. You know, I'm pretty hard charging. He is a lot more zen. So, you know, so that's, that's an obvious one. I think if we were both really like hard charging, I don't know if this would have happened. So it was a nice balance, kind of a yin and yang type of balance there. And uh, uh, so that's one. And then like tactically, like we did one-on-ones every week for years. And we made commitment to meet up in person a lot, you know, especially after remote. Like he was just here. We just went and saw the Lumineers on Saturday. Nice. And then Stanley slept in, in, on my couch. So like, <laughs> you know, so, so there's that. But finding somebody that can complement your strengths, you know, like you're not necessarily like your, your weaknesses, but... Uh, I think that's really important and just been talking a lot. Good, good. That's, yeah, it's remarkable like to have you know, a, a long-term partnership because it's, it's like being in a marriage in a different way, right? Oh yeah. He's my, he's my uh, second wife. So, so. <laughs> it's, yeah, no, it's, it's worked out and he's a good friend now. So awesome. Well, look, like this has been great. I know we've been going on and we, we got deep into 19 of your points. So, um, Look, I think we should be wrapping it up. I really appreciate you joining. You know, if you have anything to plug, uh, now's the time to do it. Uh, I don't know. If I got you're, nothing. You're not starting. Other than come, come to Bend, Oregon, and uh, buy you a beer. Okay. It's a, it's a great, great town. S- sounds good. Well, look, this has been great. I, I really appreciate you making the time right after your big exit. Right on. Happy to be here. Happy to share. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Andy. Mm-hmm.